Well, regardless of your background, Jesus is hard to ignore. Almost two billion Christians claim to follow him. Muslims honor him as a prophet. Jewish theologians say he was a great rabbi. You can even find pictures of him in Hindu temples. And people even claim, sometimes cult leaders claim, to be the reincarnation of him. Jesus has somehow made his way in everywhere. So no matter what you believe or who you are, you have to do something with Jesus. A Yale historian said of Jesus this. He said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions pray. So no matter who you are or what you believe, you have to do something with Jesus. So what are you going to do with Jesus this year? What are your plans with him this year? Well, here at Summit, we are going to spend this year studying him. We're going to spend a year in the life of Jesus looking at who he said he was, what he did, and what he taught. And who did he say he was? Well, I think it's a really good place to start because it's different than than looking at what other people said about him. It's essentially looking at what his Twitter bio would say, right? Because like a Twitter bio is 140 carefully chosen characters that say what you want to say about yourself. So my, my Twitter bio says that I'm, that I'm messed up, but I'm trying, and I'm so glad it's all about grace. And, and then it lists that uh, my love is Kelly, and that I'm the dad of Oliver, Atticus, Alice, Prin, Huck, and the soon-to-be-here Diggory. And then I say I'm your pastor. That's what I want people to know about me. So what does your Twitter bio say? And I know not all of us are on social media, but, but what, I'm, what I'm essentially asking is, what do you choose to say about yourself? What do you want people to know about you? Well, in the Gospel of John, we get to see what Jesus wants us to know about him. Jesus made seven statements that he wanted people to know about him, and they all begin, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. All of these statements contain something Jesus wants us to know about him. So let's, let's just start with the first thing he said about himself. He said, I am the bread of life. This can be found in John chapter 6. So let's look at our text uh, for today. This is John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 25 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed on your bulletin. Uh, But just to give you a little context uh, for where this takes place, Jesus has just performed a miracle. He's just performed the miracle where he fed 5,000 people from, from a little boy's lunch. A little boy had five loaves and two fishes, and, and there were all these people there that were listening to Jesus' teaching, and, and it was a pretty long way back into town where they lived, and so they were hungry, and so Jesus said, well, I, I can provide for you right now, right here and right now. I will take these five loaves and these two fishes, and, and I'm going to pray, and then you're all going to have more food than you could eat. And that's what happened. So that's just happened. And we're told that after that happened, everyone was amazed and they wanted to make Jesus their king. And, and we're told that Jesus went off to a, to a quiet place because he wanted to kind of avoid all the hubbub. 
And so we pick up the next day. This is John chapter 6, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is God's word. So after feeding a bunch of people with actual bread, Jesus then turns to these people and he says, I am the bread of life. So what's he saying about himself? Well, there are two words for life in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. And these two Greek words are bios and zoe. Now, bios is where we get the word biological from, and, and when it's used, it, it's meaning physical life, like this thing is physically alive. But zoe is a word that means quality of life. And so Jesus here says that he's the bread of zoe. He's the bread of life. We just took our, our kids, on a, our older kids, our three older kids, on a trip to California over Christmas, and... Um, um, and I, I, when I fly, I just want to, I don't, I don't care about like what, how nice the plane is. I just want the cheapest flight I can find, except I will not fly Frontier again. I don't know if you've flown Frontier, but it is literally the plastic shell of a chair. They don't even bother to cover it. Um, and so I won't fly Frontier, but anything other than Frontier, if it's cheap, I will fly it. And so I found us uh, what I thought were very cheap flights to California. And y'all, it ended up being like the lap of luxury. It was a Virgin American. I don't know if you're America, if you've ever flown that, but you should, and especially if it's cheap, and because uh, there's all this leg room, and then every seat um, had a TV, you know, on the back of it, and and the best part of it was the flight attendants don't come down the aisle with that cart that, you know, always hits you in the knee. Um, you, on your screen, order whatever you want. You order your drinks and your food on the screen, and, and the flight attendant will bring it to you, and you can do this throughout the entire flight. You can just order whenever you want. And so my kids took full advantage of this. And so um, after, uh, after Alice had ordered a, a, a hot tea, a hot chocolate, a Coke, and a water with lemon, um, she leaned over to me and she said, this is the life. Now, was Alice talking, was she making a statement about being physically alive and breathing? No. She was saying that she was living her best life now. She was talking about the quality of life. She was talking about Zoe. See, there's a big difference between existing and living. You can exist on Southwest, but you can live on Virgin America, you know? To a nine-year-old, having someone bring you all the drinks you want whenever you want, that is life. That is living life. 
So what would you say is living life? What is the life to you? Is it getting that dream job? Maybe it's getting married, having kids, making a million dollars. Maybe uh, being able to retire early so you can travel the world. Or maybe it's even just not having to worry about how the bills are going to get paid this month. So these people that come seeking after Jesus, what they thought was life was just getting free bread, having their bellies full. But Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, don't work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life. See, Jesus wants to offer them more than what they just need to exist. He wants to offer them what they need to truly live. And he was saying this as one who knew what it meant to work to put food on the table. He knew that no matter how hard you work, once the meal is over, you have to start thinking about the next meal. One of the things that fascinates me about Jesus uh, is that he lived 30 years pretty much in obscurity. We know a little bit about Jesus' birth and then we have this one incident when he's 12 years old and he's at a temple. But apart from that, We know nothing about him until he starts his public ministry at age 30. So what were those 30 years about? I think those 30 years were just as important as the three years recounted in the Gospels. So what can we know about those 30 years? Not very much. We know that Jesus could have uh, trained to be a scribe and a rabbi. We knew he could have chosen the path of a religious professional, but he didn't. We know that he chose to prepare for his public ministry by working with his dad, by being a blue-collar worker. That is how he chose to prepare for his ministry. Jesus chose to spend most of his life learning from his adoptive father, Joseph the carpenter. Jesus, for 30 years, was a builder. He was a craftsman who worked with his hands. Uh, He spent so much time in the wood shop perspiring and and getting his hands dirty and his clothes dirty and experiencing all the exhaustion that comes from manual labor. And I don't know this for certain, but my guess is he spent many years as the sole breadwinner for his family. Joseph, his father, appears in the Gospels uh, when when Jesus is 12 and shows up at the temple. But then after that, Joseph disappears. When Jesus starts his public ministry, we never hear mention of Joseph again. In all likelihood, it's because Joseph passed away when Jesus was growing up. And if that's the case, as the oldest son, Jesus would have been responsible for supporting his mother and his brothers and his sisters. So when Jesus looks at, at these people who are coming to him, And wanting their needs met, wanting more bread, he knew the pressures of having to work hard to put food on the table. Jesus is not Mary Poppins who just snaps his finger and then all of a sudden things happen or or, or Snow White and he whistles and all of a sudden all these woodland creatures come and do the work for him. That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus came in human likeness to live an ordinary human life. He didn't live a superhero existence. Those 30 years were important because in those 30 years, Jesus was living like you and me. Think about this for a second. Jesus the carpenter, falling and scraping his knee while he's he's running to try to, to, to make it to an appointment. Or Jesus, the carpenter, hitting his thumb with the hammer after overshooting the nail by just a, a little centimeter. 
or Jesus the carpenter getting a splinter and having to go through the agony of having his mom pick at it with, with a needle. And not only does Jesus know the rigors of manual labor, but he also knows the boredom. He lived the mundane. 30 years. In those 30 years, he had boring days at work. He had days where he had to build the same stool over and over again, where he wished that he had come at the time of Facebook, right? Like he knew what it was to be bored at work. And he also knew what it was like to work for others. Imagine a local farmer hires him to fix a plow and and, and when Jesus gets in there to actually do the work, he, he realizes that he estimated wrong. That, that, that in fact it was going to take longer than he first thought. And, and so it took longer. It was more complicated. And then the farmer's frustrated because it's taking longer. So he starts to spread rumors that Jesus was a dishonest and lazy or an incompetent worker. Or maybe Jesus worked on someone's house. Maybe he closed in their porch, finally giving them that Florida room that they always wanted, right? And then they don't pay him. See, Jesus knew the temptation to feel anger towards people. He was tempted to argue his case, to defend himself. He knew the pressure of having to work to put food on the table. One of the most comforting verses, I think, in all of Scripture is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What that's telling us is that Jesus felt all the temptations that you and I do every day, and yet he never gave in to them. He spent 30 years in obscurity living a life that knows how to die. Living a life that loses instead of fights to win. He died to himself on a daily basis. In those years he worked as a carpenter, working with fallen human beings, trained him for his ultimate calling, which will require him laying down his life for his friends and his enemies too. So when these people come and seek Jesus and he looks at him, he says, don't work for food that spoils. He's not speaking as this like religious man. He's speaking as a carpenter, as a worker. He gets it. He knows what it's like to work, to put food on the table, only to know that the next day you got to get up and do it again. He knows what their hearts most need, and he also knows what they'd be willing to settle for. He knows that they will settle for just having their bellies full again, but instead, he wants to invite them to more. What have you been settling with? What have you settled for? And has Jesus been inviting you to more? The people come to Jesus, and and when he says that, and he talks about this bread from heaven, they immediately say, well, what must we do? What what must we do? What, What works must we do to do all that God requires? And Jesus says, the work is to believe, to believe in the one he has sent. A couple weeks ago, I met with someone in my office who who believes all the things that we Christians believe. But he came to see me because he was feeling like those beliefs really made no difference in his life. I mean, yes, he he acted a certain way because of those beliefs. but, But his problem was, he said, I just don't have any real joy because of those beliefs. And as he was talking, I stopped him and I just said, hey, just, all right, just tell me about Jesus. And then he immediately began to tell me all these things he believes about Jesus. And I stopped him again. I said, no, 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 no. I mean, just, just talk to me about Jesus. Like, like, like how, how does Jesus see you? And then he started to cry. 
And he says, I don't think Jesus sees me at all. This verse, this response Jesus gives, the work is to believe in the one he has sent, um, is a verse that I think can give us some trouble. It's a verse that we hear a lot, and I remember hearing it growing up, and, and it actually was very stressful. It's very stressful to think about, all right, my work is to believe. Because sometimes when you have doubt, sometimes when, when it doesn't make sense, you think, all right, I just got to make myself believe this stuff. I've got to convince myself of this. I've got to work really hard to believe. Well, that's what this, this guy who came to my office, that's what he'd been doing. He had been trying to work and believe the right things. But Jesus, see, there's a difference. There's a, there's a kind of holding on to certain beliefs that can just be existing and not living. And Jesus is inviting us to live. So, so what, what did he really mean by his response? When he said the work is to believe, I think the key in Jesus' response is the word sent. The work is to believe in the one he sent, God sent. If someone sends you something, what's your job? Your job's to receive it. The work is actually to receive. A huge oak tree has roots that works hard at drawing all the minerals and water out of the soil so that the tree can be nourished. But those roots, they don't produce the water. They don't produce the minerals. They don't even have to really think about the, the fact that they're there. The roots job, the only job of the roots is to receive. Our work, the work to believe is really work to receive. And what is it we're receiving? Him. We're receiving Christ himself. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You loved thinking about this bread that, that I provided for you yesterday. And then you talk about this bread that came from heaven that God provided to, to his people in the wilderness under Moses. But what I'm offering you is me. The bread of life is not some ideal. It's not some set of beliefs. It's an actual person. You can know a person, you can befriend a person, you can talk and listen to a person. The bread of life is a person who cried, who laughed, who, who got angry, who suffered. And so after performing a miracle involving bread, Jesus says, don't just look at that miracle. Look at me. I am the miracle. I'm the bread you're looking for. Now, I know for some, you think, well, if... if if I could just see Jesus do a miracle, like the feeding of the 5,000, then that would prove to me that it's all true. That that would prove to me that Christianity is legit. But Jesus says, no, it won't. But I can. My life can. Look at my life. Look at everything. Look at what I do. Look at what I say. Look at how I live. If you want evidence for Christianity, if you want to be completely convinced, then you have to read my story. Then you have to read my life. I asked that, that man who came into my office, when was the last time he just read something out of the Gospels? And it had been a long time. He spent a lot of time working to try to believe all this stuff, but he had spent no time receiving. That's how we receive. That's why this year we've created that gospel reading plan that starts on Monday. And y'all, I'm so happy that we're starting it on Monday because if you're like me, you would have started a reading plan already and already dropped it because you got behind, right? Like you got behind or, or maybe you're even the t person who just forgot to start on January 1st. So then you're like, oh man, oh well. Uh, hey, we got you covered. You start on Monday, okay? We can all start on Monday. And listen, every day for the next year, we have put together a reading from the gospels that I hope that you will read that I hope that you'll be in this together with us because 
it's in reading the Gospels. It's in looking at Jesus that we begin to do that work of receiving. I am convinced if our church only did one thing all of next year, if it was we all read and looked at Jesus, I am, I am 100% positive that we would go from, from a church of, of people who exist to a church of people who truly live. But there's more. Later in this same passage, Jesus says this in verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. There's a lot of people who think of Jesus as a great moral teacher, but he doesn't really leave that as an option for us. As C.S. Lewis so brilliantly states in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something far worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We cannot call him a great moral teacher because look at the claims he makes about himself. He says, I, I'm, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. And if you eat me, if you eat me, you will live forever we cannot say that he's a great teacher because of what he claims about himself. And to be honest, I don't want him to be my teacher or my example. I like my examples to be a little less perfect. I had this, uh, I had this mentor um, a few years ago who, um, he drove me crazy because whenever he would talk about him, his struggles and his sin, it always felt very hypothetical. Like I didn't, I didn't believe um, that he wasn't perfect. And when I look at Jesus... When I look at him living flawlessly and beautifully, it doesn't encourage me in the sense of me thinking, oh man, yeah, I can be like that. I know on my own I'm a mess. I mean, that's, that's why that's my Twitter bio. I'm a mess. I know I'm a mess, but I'm trying. And so Jesus' perfect life always condemns me. But if Jesus is the bread of life that is given for me, all of a sudden he's very different to me. Take, take, a, take a piece of bread. All right, so if you have a piece of bread and it's not broken, it's of no help to you. It, it's, like, um, it's like bread for people on Whole30, right? Like, like they can smell it, they can even lick it, but unless it's broken, it's not going to satisfy them. If Jesus were only an example and a teacher, he's really of no benefit to you and me. He's only there to condemn us. But when Jesus says, my bread is the flesh I gave for the life of the world. He's telling us that he came to stand in our place, to be broken like a piece of bread in our place, 
Those 30 years of obscurity where Jesus worked as a carpenter, where he had to struggle with all the things of just everyday life, he did that so that he could live the life that you and I were designed to live, the mundane life perfectly without sin, so that he could die the death that we deserve for our sin in our place. So when Jesus comes and he looks at these people who are begging him to do another miracle, he says, listen, I didn't come to just do miracles for you or to be an example for you. I didn't come for that because that will only condemn you. That will only make you realize how far you have to go to be like me. I did not come to condemn but to save. I came to be broken for you. And we're told after Jesus does this, after he says all this, that most of the people got up and left and said, all right, we're, we're out. Now, if you read the whole passage, Jesus says some weird things like he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it's all very twilighty. And, and so, like, I get it. I get why people left. But even the ones who stayed, even the apostles, the apostle Peter, they didn't stay because all of a sudden they understood what Jesus was talking about. They stayed because they didn't know where else to go. They stayed because there was an invitation to want more, even if they didn't understand it. They stayed because there was still more to chew on and to wrestle with. And because they stayed, you see, and and you can see this in the disciples, you see men go from, from being men who exist to men who truly live. If you and I, if we're to feed on Jesus as the bread of life, it means we're constantly thinking this. Every problem I have is because I'm making something my life rather than Jesus. I'm basing my life on something that is less than him. My Twitter bio is less than Jesus. In Colossians 3, it says, Christ is your life, hidden with God. What does that mean? It means if you're worried today, the solution is not saying, all right, I need to stop worrying. It's that we have to say, I'm making something my life instead of Jesus. I've made something more important. I've placed my hope or my security on something that is less than Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's actually giving us something we can do on a daily basis. He's giving us a solution to all our problems. We can take Jesus as our life. Jesus says, feed on me. Make me your life. Don't go away. Stay. George Whitfield the great preacher of the 18th century always ended his sermons the same way. He would repeat the verse that he had just preached on, and then he would say, go and learn what this meaneth. Now, I, you know, I, isn't that what he just did? <laughs> like, isn't, isn't that what the whole sermon is? Didn't he just spend the last 30 minutes trying to explain what the verse meant? But you see, to Whitfield... He never presumed to do anything more than just introduce the verse to the people, to invite them to want more. He knew that in order for for the verse to actually have impact in their life, they had to take it and not just take what they learned in those 30 minutes, but they had to wrestle with it. They had to think about it. They had to talk about it with other people. What needs to happen for bread to give us life? It has to be digested. It needs to work its way into our system. It needs to become part of us. It needs to become part of our system. And that takes time. So Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never go hungry. In 2018, let's go and together learn what that meaneth. Let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you that in Jesus that we can have life and real life. That in Jesus uh, we can feed on something that actually has the power to sustain us and empower us and and to move us into a life that is more than just existing, but into a life of purpose and meaning. And Father, I thank you that that we have four Gospels. I thank you that we have have pages and pages of Jesus' life that we can reflect on, that we can receive from. And Father, I pray that that would happen this year. I pray that as a church family, that we really would feed on Jesus. That we would digest his life in a way that actually changes us. Father, I pray that this year we would become people who are transformed into the image of Christ truly for the sake of others. We pray that our city and our world will look differently because we have been with Jesus. And we pray all of this in his name, the one who is our bread of life, Jesus. Amen.